speak to us now. And lift our hearts. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So it's been a minute since we've been together, and so we're going to review Acts just a little bit. In the book of Acts, uh, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And so we see this all kind of take place in miniature in the first few chapters of Acts. Jesus tells his disciples, he gives them this mini great commission in verse 8. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to tell everyone that I have died for sin, was dead and in the grave, and now I have risen. I offer forgiveness of sins to anyone who puts their faith in me. And I'm going to be seated on my throne in heaven ruling. And I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you to empower you to take this message, this good news, this gospel to the nations. And so in chapter 1, we see Jesus ascend into the clouds, and the disciples are kind of standing there staring, and like, uh, you know, just kind of watching him disappear into another dimension or something, I'm not really sure. Some other guys show up and like, hey, stop staring, he'll return get to waiting on the Holy Spirit. And so they go into Jerusalem, they, they pray, they hang out, and one day the Holy Spirit comes down. We call it Pentecost. Everybody begins speaking in various languages. We learn that this good news is going to be for all the nations. Peter preaches that famous first sermon and calls people to repent and believe in Jesus, calls them to be baptized. And from that moment forward, we see the, the witness of Jesus' disciples filling up the city of Jerusalem. And eventually it spills out of Jerusalem's walls. And initially it's because of persecution and opposition. And that's one of the major, major themes of Acts. It might be the theme in Acts, if you're just going to remember one, is that in the face of adversity, the word of God prevails. There's opposition, but God's word goes forth. Some of God's messengers are buried and die, but God's message goes forward, and the gospel prevails. The good news will make it to the ends of the earth. God's goals are being met. His purpose is being accomplished, even right now. That persecution that sends everybody into the hillsides comes as Stephen is killed at the end of chapter 7. They go into Samaria and Judea. In this pattern of, of opposition and the word prevailing, well, it emerges in our section again today. So Acts like 13 through 15 is really just this missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And at the beginning of 13, we see they're, they're sent out by that church in Antioch where the Holy Spirit calls them to this work and then they're sent to it. And so they go to that island of Cyprus and you guys remember there was that uh, false Jewish prophet named Bar-Jesus or Elamus and he doesn't like Paul and Barnabas. He doesn't like this gospel. And so he opposes them. And he's telling the governor to whom they are sharing the gospel with, he says, don't, you know, don't listen to them. And Paul is, is very blunt. And, and he says, uh, let me read it directly so I don't put words in Paul's mouth. He says, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. 
You're going to be blind and you will not see for a time. And the guy goes blind. He's led about by the hand. Paul shares the gospel with the governor of the island. That's who the proconsul is. And we read that the proconsul believes because he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so they're opposed and the gospel prevails. The word goes forward. Then we, we see Paul and Barnabas come to Pisidia, Antioch there. There's two Antiochs. I know it gets a little bit confusing, but it's kind of like there are multiple Washingtons throughout the United States, right? There's more than one place called that. So they're there at Pisidian Antioch, and Paul preaches this really big sermon. It takes up most of chapter 13. And his point is, all of history has been about Jesus. All of it has been building up and working towards this moment when he would come and die for the sins of the world and raise from the dead so that we could have peace with God, life together with God. The exodus, that happened. God took us out of slavery, saved us out of slavery and into sonship. That exodus was ultimately to teach us about this Jesus who has come. He, He takes us away from our slavery to sin and adopts us into his family as sons. He gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. That that was about Jesus. All the prophets, they were telling us about Jesus. All of your Bible, everything that has ever happened was all about bringing us to Jesus. It points to him. That's what the Bible is about. That's what the whole world is about. Everything that exists, exists for him and is held together by him. So Paul says, everyone, this is verse 39 of chapter 13, everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Remember we said justification has those two pieces to it. That we're forgiven of our sin. So it's just as if I never sinned. And it's just as if I did everything right. Just as if I lived a perfectly holy life. That's how God sees me when he declares me to be just. Declares those who put their faith in Christ just, Paul says. And then he gives this warning in verses 40 and 41, and he basically says, do not repeat the mistakes of your fathers. Do not repeat the mistakes of your past. Don't reject God's revelation. Don't reject God's Messiah. Believe. And if you don't, you're going to miss the whole point. You're going to miss the meaning of life which is to know the God you were created for. And naturally, his warning falls on deaf ears, right? Because immediately, opposition fiercely rises up against him and Barnabas. And we kind of see how things are going to go as the church continues to share the gospel there at the end of chapter 13. Some people hear and believe. They see and savor Christ. And others scoff at and resent him. Remember, they, they chase Paul and Barnabas out of Antioch, right? Right there at the end of chapter 13. They're they're getting together, they're persecuting them, and so they they chase them out, and we read, even as Paul and Barnabas are moving on to the next city, which is Iconium, that they are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There's a joy in obeying God. Even though things are hard for them, there is this joy of knowing Christ. So they go into Iconium, They go into the synagogue and they they speak and a bunch of people believe. Then opposition rises up against them and we read in verse 3, this is one of my favorite, like they're opposed. People are trying to poison the minds of the brothers against them. And so they stay 
And they stay there a long time and speak boldly for the Lord. They want to establish proper Christian orthodoxy in this church in Iconium before they leave. And some time passes and there's still this division in the city until finally a plot is uncovered. They discover that they're going to be stoned. And so we read in verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and they fled to the Laconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. And there they continued preaching the gospel. That's, that's where we are today is in Lystra. And so you can see this pattern, opposition and the word prevailing. God's message going on. Some people believing, some people resenting and scoffing at Christ. They're going to continue their mission in Lystra. Lystra is kind of a backwater town. Uh, it's been described by, by one pastor as if it were to be a character and you want to think of like the movie Cars, like this town would be Mater, right? So that's the kind of town. There's lots of y'alls and Mater like Tumator. That's the kind of people that, are, that Paul and Barnabas are going to be preaching to. This is not a um, city center. And so we read in verse 8. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet and had never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. And after looking directly at him and seeing he had faith to be saved, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. This is great. The, the lame man, he's never walked. He hears Paul proclaiming the gospel. He believes. And Paul decides that he is going to not only allow him to be saved from his sins, but to be healed from his physical ailment. And so he tells him to get up and walk. The man does. He jumps. He walks around. You go, well, why? This miracle, it sounds really familiar. Like, why does Paul do this? Why is this their approach? Well, it should sound familiar to you. Do you remember uh, back in Acts chapter 3, we saw a really, really similar thing. Remember, Peter and John are going about their daily routine of going to the temple and offering prayers and Luke kind of has the camera focused on them and then he shifts it over to this lame man that we've never met before and we're told that this guy has been lame from birth and that daily he's carried by someone and he's set in front of what's called the gate beautiful or the beautiful gate and so we have this picture of this broken man who can't walk in front of the beautiful gate that leads into the temple and if this were a movie, maybe the, the camera comes up from his perspective, and all of a sudden we see Peter and John in the frame coming right at him. And so he does what beggars do. He says, alms for the poor, something, something like that, I'm sure. And Peter, Peter says, look at us. In verse 6 of chapter 3, I don't have silver or gold, but what I, I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. 
And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Peter heals this man. Oh, why? Well, same reason that, that Paul healed the lame man. The miracle always serves the message. Miracles in Acts are used to prove the veracity of the apostles' message. Proves them true. It shows that Jesus still has the power to forgive sins. That Jesus really is still alive, ruling and reigning. And we see that this miracle serves Peter's message in verse 19. When he says, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Or maybe you think instead of when Jesus does a similar miracle. In Mark 2, remember Jesus is preaching to a packed house. It's standing room only. Like the bouncer is outside with that velvet rope put across and he's not letting anyone else in. And these four guys and their friend, they, they show up late, but they're like, we've got to get him to Jesus. He's a paralytic. They've heard that Jesus can heal folks. And so they're like, we're going to find another way into the house. We're going to find a way to Jesus. And they do. They get up on the roof. They, they dig through the roof and they, they lower this guy down. I don't know how they did it with like ropes or something. What's that called when you have like a system of bungee cords that lift people up now? I don't know. But maybe they have that going on. They, they plunge him down in there and they're like, our friend is going to walk. We've, we've done it. Jesus is going to heal him. And, and Jesus looks at him in this really kind of climactic moment and he says, son, everybody's waiting for, go ahead and walk. And Jesus doesn't say that. He says, your sins are forgiven. And I imagine the reaction in the room was a little bit like uh, if you, you know, if when I was a kid and I opened clothes on Christmas, like, great. Thank you so much. Just what I wanted. But Jesus, he's got a method to his madness. He's prompting the question in the heads of the teachers and everybody around him. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's his point. He's going to use his miracle to serve his message. He's going to show them that, yes, it is harder to forgive sins than it is to heal someone physically and that he is able to do both. Why? Because he's God. And so he says in Mark 2.10, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately, man got up, took his mat, and went out. And so the reason that Jesus heals the paralytic, the reason that Peter heals the beggar at the, ba- at the gate called Beautiful, the reason that Paul heals this layman here is to prove the message. That their message isn't just made up, but that it comes with real power. The miracles always serve the message. They are authenticating God's messenger and the gospel that they are proclaiming. And so at this point, our people in Lystra, after Paul has healed this lame man, what they should do is maybe listen a little harder. They should be repenting of their sins, having them forgiven, coming to Christ in submission, You should be hearing this message, but that's not what happens at all. In fact, it seems like they they have to be ignoring what Paul has said. In verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the 
Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. This just it's a really weird reaction, right? Jesus Christ, who is God, has come. He's died for the sins of man, and he's taken his life up again. He's the one true God. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in him. He has the power to save, the power to heal. And in response, they go to one another in their own language. So Paul and Barnabas don't understand this. Hey, I think that's Zeus. And this other guy, he's Hermes. Let's, let's worship these dudes. They help that guy to walk. Like, they just completely miss it. It's as if they are, they're deaf or, or blind. Oftentimes at home, I have this experience where uh, I will go into my kitchen and I'll be looking for something in particular. And I'll, I'll open my refrigerator and feel that just wonderfully cool air come out and just kind of touch my skin ever so gently. And I'll stare into that, that glowing box and look and look and look for whatever it is I'm after. And eventually, because I'm unable to see it, I'll call for my wife. And Chelsea, inevitably, will come up and not even, I don't even know that she looks into the refrigerator and will grab for me exactly what I was looking for off the shelf and hand it to me. And I was right there. It was right in front of me. How did I not see it? She tells me, you've got man eyes. I think, I think something like that is, is happening in, in Lystra. They've got, they've got man eyes. Can't see what's right in front of them. What they need is spiritual eyes. They need a miracle from God. They need to hear and believe His word. Instead, it appears that they are ignoring it. Friends, I think that we are tempted towards this same negligence. What I mean is we have a propensity to not be vigilant about keeping our hearts. And all of a sudden we find ourselves ignoring or closed off to or fortified against God's word. We can't hear what God has said. So maybe, for example, instead of being excited when we wake up on Sunday morning, you know, like, all right, uh, I think we're in Acts. Maybe Justin will be here for the first time in forever. I'm going to read ahead in the passage. I can't wait to, to hear uh, what God has to say. I'm going to make some observations, write them down, then I'll compare his with mine. And Man, I just I can't wait to hear what God has to say in his word today. But instead of having that kind of a mindset, it's like, oh no, it's Sunday. <laughs> He's probably going to talk for almost 50 minutes. This is awful. I know, I know Peter said that, that Jesus had the words of life, but oh my goodness. We want to guard against this kind of attitude. Or maybe you've had the experience in your quiet time. You go, I'm going to make it a priority in my life to read God's word every day. And you never do. Or if you do, it feels like drudgery. And you're like, uh, you know, um, what's a show? NCIS starts at like 7 o'clock at 6.50. Uh, yeah. Lord's my shepherd. I shine on one. All right, amen, let's go. Time to make some popcorn. Got it done. 
Friends, we want to guard against ignoring God's Word or making it something that's tertiary to our lives. It's how He speaks to us. And I'm going to wager that you don't have a good relationship with anyone you don't talk to or listen to. (laughs) I don't know how you can expect to have a relationship with God if you do not pray and you ignore His Word If you want your religion to be worthless, you want to practice worthless worship, approach God's word that way, begrudgingly, in a way that basically ignores what he's saying. These folks ignore God's word. And furthermore, they create their own meaning. Look with me back in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, They shouted, saying, in Lyconian, man, that word, I feel like I've got it right every time, but it's rough. In the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates, because he intended, with the crowds, to offer sacrifice. Why on earth did they respond this way? Uh, Some have suggested, as did the Latin poet Ovid, that there was a legend that existed in the region wherein gods came down and visited the people and they sought someone to host them. And everyone rejected them, with the exception of one couple. That couple who welcomed the gods, well, they had their little cottage transformed into a magnificent temple and were its... um, protectors, its guardians, while everyone else was crushed with a severe flood. And so these people see Paul and Barnabas doing the miraculous, and instead of hearing the message that is being proclaimed to them, they take it and they shape it to fit the stories that they're already living by. They take it and they shape it to fit their worldview. So this must be, the way we understand the world, this must be Hermes and Zeus in the flesh. And so they say, let's worship them. They create their own meaning. They build a fantasy. That's what creating your own meaning really is. It's building a fantasy by which you live your life. There's no real meaning there. It's just a fantasy that might make you feel better about how you're doing things. This misstep, it's not unique to those in Lystra. In fact, I think it's ubiquitous in our culture, both outside and inside the church. Outside the church, people do this to Jesus. They go, well, you know, we're going to dismiss his claims to be God or to be Lord, and we're going to say he's just, just a good teacher. Really nice guy. You know, like if you, if you miss these claims of Jesus, you've missed him entirely. He's just, he's just a nice guy, kind of a guru, maybe a, a life coach. He said some things I like. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule. He's a nice guy, but he's not a king. Inside the church, we do a similar thing. Oftentimes, making Jesus uh, just a nice guy or, or a cheerleader for whatever we want to do. 
I think one of our favorite moves in the church is to, to shape him so that he fits firmly in the pocket of our favorite politicians. Maybe even more widespread is how we ever so slightly twist or ignore or, or change the words of Christ that have been preserved for us in Scripture. Maybe I'm going to try to give you a couple examples. So we'll read something like Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more significant than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we'll look at something like that, and in our pride, what we'll do is go, really, it's in everybody's best interests if I pursue my interests, because I know what's best. They can't see it now, but if if I pursue my way, then it'll work out best for them at the end. So really, I'm considering their interests. I think one of the ways uh, this comes across is in, uh, I don't know, in the 90s, there were these things called the worship wars. That's how people have labeled them, where are we going to have contemporary music or are we going to sing hymns? And churches split over it. That's stupid. But people, folks, went, I'm I'm not going to pay attention to Philippians 2-3. Jesus wouldn't call me to humble myself and put someone's interests ahead of my own. Not, not my Jesus. Or maybe Luke 17. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Well, first of all, we're just going to dismiss the first part out of hand. Like, I'm not going to confront or rebuke anyone. Judge not. Would never call anyone on sin. And the second part, if he sins against me and I should forgive him, well, of course I'll say I forgive him. But the, the verse doesn't say when I have to forgive. So I'll just do that on my timetable when I get over it. Or I'll offer this kind of forgiveness and then not actually reconcile. Kind of faux forgiveness so that our relationship is really awkward when we're in the same room. And tension's going to fill the air not going to get back to loving one another. I'm not even going to the passages on church discipline or on sexual ethics. But I will do one more. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I can't tell you how many Christians ignore this verse completely or shape it to fit their own needs and desires. I don't really, I don't really need to gather together regularly with a body of Christians. I can be a good Christian by staying at home and gathering together with other Christians when I want, like at a coffee shop at my leisure or maybe at school. And I'll be good. I, I can encourage other Christians on social media or Facebook or Twitter. And I certainly, like, I can listen to, to preaching through a podcast or turn the TV preacher on. That's the same thing as gathering with, with a body of believers. We shape, and when we allow our hearts to wander, we, we begin to, like the evil one, twist and shape God's word so that it suits our desires 
We've said this many times, but it's worth repeating. If God cannot correct you, if your God cannot contradict you, then you're not worshiping the God who is. You are worshiping yourself. And you've simply created your own God in your own image. You've built a fantasy that you're living by because that's what you're comfortable with. But the God who is calls us to deny ourselves, to crucify our flesh, to take up our cross and follow him. Put our faith in him and enjoy that wonderful gift of justification and to pursue holiness and obedience to his word. When we allow our hearts to wander, we are prone to practice worthless worship, worthless religion. A religion that is centered on not God, but me. And guard against this temptation by being committed to a local church, by engaging with other Christians, being committed to listening to and obeying God's word. We also see here in Lystra, they've ignored the word, they've created their own meaning, and they are participating in what will be a worthless worship ceremony. But lastly, they will refuse to repent. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul, tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are men also just like you. And we are proclaiming good news to you that you would turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. This scene is sort of comical to me a little bit. Like Paul and Barnabas, they, they heal a guy, they're preaching the good news, and I just wonder if they're going, wow, these guys are really hyped up. Things are going great. Because remember, they're ta- the, the folks talk to one another in their own language, and they're like, we're going to worship these guys, Zeus and Hermes. And so I imagine, like in my head, like they're just continuing to teach, and like this evangelism is going great. And then all of a sudden, like I just, you know, Barnabas sees out of the corner of his eye, like, Bunch of bulls coming up, wreaths. It's like, who, what? What is, what is that? Oh, that's the, that's the priest of Zeus. The priest of who? What, what have they got the bulls? Well, they're going to make sacrifices to you guys. They think you're gods. Right? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 not us. They tear their garments. And you, you have to respect them. You notice what they, they don't, they don't go, okay, okay. Maybe not cap, we're not capital G gods, but maybe small g. Bull looks like it would make a nice steak. And, well, just this one time, Paul, have a little red with it. It would be great. They don't do that. They don't entertain the notion of enjoying the adulation and praise of the people. I wonder, though, what would you do and I know immediately we all go, of course, we would act like Paul and Barnabas. We'd be really upset about this. 
As I thought about this, though, for myself, I don't, I don't know that that's true. Because I live in such a way sometimes that contradicts that. Sometimes I really do live wrongly when I don't keep a close watch of this heart of mine. I live for the approval of others and their praise rather than the praise and approval of God. Sometimes I live as if I am God. Do you sometimes pretend to be the God of your own life? This is this is sin. Paul and Barnabas don't even entertain the notion. They they tear their garments. This is a sign of mourning. They are put off. Why on earth would you do these things? We are men like you. We're people just like you. And this is really important. They're saying, all of us are the same. We, We have the imago Dei. We've been made in the image of God. We have like nature. And that means we have like needs. Just just like we need the gospel, you need the gospel. We're just like you, except for we know Jesus, and you really need to know Jesus, right? So we're just like you, and we're proclaiming good news to you. Man, this is, when we understand that each and every person that we ever come across is made in the image of God, and is dead in their sin apart from Christ, that should really cause us to have compassion towards them and a desire to share the gospel with them. This is what Paul and Barnabas are are longing for these folks in Lystra to turn away from their idols and follow Jesus. They, They proclaim, turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. The point's clear here. I think the the God who exists is the God who speaks. And he speaks in his word, in his creation, in Christ, and in his church. Paul and Barnabas are saying He's, he's speaking to you now through us. He's telling you the gospel. He's telling you of Christ who has come. But he hasn't left himself without a witness. God has been present in your lives, your whole lives, even though you don't know it. He is the creator. Every good and perfect gift is from him and meant to lead you back to him. It's meant to cause praise to well up within your soul. Like, like Have you ever just had like felt like there was someone in the, in the universe you needed to say thank you to? Isn't God put that there? He says, whether you realize it or not, there is a God who has been taking care of you. There's common grace all around us. He said, he's given you the blessing of rain. He's given you the fruitful harvests. He's given you food and gladness in your hearts. These things are from God. God's common grace is all around us, all the time. 
every good thing is from him. And, and I don't know that we pay a ton of attention to it, right? I think it's we get sucked up into the news. We kind of live by all what's exciting. If it bleeds, it leads. I mean, you've never turned on your TV to whatever your preferred news station is and, and got like that little breaking news. Family living happily together. Hasn't happened. Breaking news, couple works through their issues, stays together. Wow, that's not getting clicks on the internet, that's not getting reads. But it's, it's true. Those things are happening. God's blessing is, is, is all around us. I mean, food and friends and family and laughter and drink and mountains and valleys and grass and sun and stars and water. Have you ever thought about how just amazing water is? I know that sounds crazy, but it's amazing. God has given these gifts. and They are meant to lead us to offering him praise. And this is what, what they're telling the folks at Lystra is that, that creation all these good things in your life are preaching a sermon to you about the goodness of God. And you haven't known him until now, but he is speaking to you. The God who is speaks and he has revealed himself to you in creation and in every good thing you have. Turn from worshiping worthless things, turn from taking good things and making them God things and give your worship to the one true God who is and is for you. The God who loves you. That would love if, if I were there to have taken their story and said, you know, you, you do have a grain of truth in this story where, where you go, uh, Paul or Zeus and Hermes have come to us in the flesh. The gods have, have come to us in human form. It's a fun myth. It's not true. But let me tell you about the true story underneath that legend. Let me tell you about the true story underneath that myth. Because the God who is and who has revealed himself to us, he really did come to earth in human form. But he, he didn't come to receive sacrifices like you just tried to give us. No, he didn't come to receive sacrifices, but to become one. He came to take the penalty for your sin and my sin and to raise from the dead in victory over death. He came to free us, to absorb the wrath of God for us so that we could be free from it. He saves us. This is why? Like, like, he does all this because he's good. This is the story you should live by. You know, stop ignoring God's word. Stop creating your own meaning. Stop refusing to repent. You're practicing worship that is worthless because we cannot save you. Worthless idols cannot save you. Whatever it is you are living for aside from Jesus Christ cannot ultimately rescue and redeem you. It can't give you the deep satisfaction you're looking for. Only right worship of the one true God can do that. And so come. Come to Jesus who's come to wed us to himself. He's come to wake up dead sinners, 
and call them to union with himself. Friends, there were some at Lystra who did come to Christ. Despite this evangelistic effort that didn't go well, we'll see how it ends next week. Uh, They end up stoned. But God did save some there, even in the face of opposition. His word was prevailing. And he will prevail. So Christian, uh, delight this morning in knowing the God who is and who has spoken to us in Christ. Who has put skin on his profession of love for us by coming to die for us and raised from the dead for us. Non-Christian, look at all the good in the world. Look at all the good gifts God has given to you. Let them lead you to our good and mighty King, Jesus. He loves you. Put your faith in him. Turn to the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had to spend together. Thank you for your spirit who binds us all as one, adopts us all into your family. Help us to love one another well. Help us to worship you rightly. Help us to hear your word and submit to it. And daily repent of our sin. Daily rejoice in our Savior. Lord, thank you for Christ. He is our all. Thank you that he's here right now. And that he loves us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.